House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. and I'm Al Warren. Mr. Mike Brown is in the room. I am. I'm here. I'm sort of hiding behind a curtain right now, waiting for uh, the strangeness to begin. It's this mysterious house with that we're in is uh, kind of weird sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, all the time. Well, when you're here, yeah. Yeah, I'm just about <laughs> always here. It's not too often. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, it just gets weirder. But, um, okay, now today we are in uh, true crime. And this yes. covers the U.S. as well as Canada. It's kind of everything. Kanakistan. Kanakistan. So we're yeah. doing it all. Um, so we've got a great writer here. And uh, the book is called The Gorilla Man Strangler Case. And it's about serial killer Earl Nelson. Now, the uh, guest is the author of this book, Alvin A.J. Esau. So thank you for being here, Alvin. Thank you. Great to be here. Elvin, how did you um, come across this case, and, and what was it about it that made you decide to actually write a book about it? Well, the, the book basically came to me rather than the other way around, because I was a professor of law at the University of Manitoba for 30 years, and way back in 1989, the dean of the law school decided to have a celebration for the 75th anniversary of the school, and asked me to identify 10 famous uh, Manitoba trials. And as I was going through and identifying those trials, one of them was this the, the uh, uh, Gorilla Man Strangler case. And so it was one of the famous trials I worked on. And uh, I sort of got into it over time, and I've been sort of at it for like 20 years or 30 years. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I sort of uh, did so much research that at some stage I decided I was going to drop it, but then I felt I'd gone down the road too far to turn back. Yeah. So uh, that's sort of how it came to me. Well, you know, it's got an interesting name. So can you comment on the Gorilla Man Strangler? Like what what was it that uh, caused people to call him that? Yes, Um when he started to, uh, we believe, he started to kill in the 1925 period. There may have been, in fact, some earlier murders that he committed. But in the early period, he was called the Dark Strangler. And the reason for that is that one of the cases in San Francisco in early 1926, um, the nephew of the landlady that he killed saw him leave the house, um, and he sort of, a remark to the man, oh, tell the landlady I'll be back in an hour to rent a room. And of course, you know, he had strangled and, and post-mortem raped the woman upstairs. And he described, this nephew described the man as being olive-skinned and dark. And so for a long time, he was called the Dark Strangler. But when you look at um, the sort of history of the use of the word gorilla man, there was a period of time in which um, especially these degenerate monsters, so to speak, were considered atavists, you know, like throwbacks in the evolutionary chain. They were vicious. And uh, the name started to stick more in 1927 when he was uh, killing women on the East Coast. And numerous news newspapers ultimately called him the Gorilla Man before he was ever in Winnipeg. And in Winnipeg, the name just stuck. All the newspapers referred to him as the Gorilla Man. And, of course, uh, he was called the Gorilla Man Strangler in the end. So that's how the name came about. But other people were also called Gorilla Man Strangler. It wasn't unique to him, you know, that they used that term for uh, serious uh, uh, murderers. Okay. So it was almost kind of a, a, a term that they would use yeah, at the yeah. time when it was someone yeah. like this going on. Yeah. So, so what was his... Um, style of killing you might say or mo so what 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 do you think you said you figured he started in 1925 so yeah what were some of the first things that he was doing well his typical mo uh, which made him kind of uh uh that which sort of links the cases together is that he preyed on women who had houses for sale or rooms to rent and so he would come under the guise of searching for a room 
uh, and he would inspect the house or whatever. And if the woman was alone, he would then strangle the woman and uh, he would all have post-mortem sex with the woman. Uh, and then he would often later on uh, in his career start robbing women as well. So he would take the wedding ring off their fingers or he would steal jewelry or money. He'd often steal clothing that he would take to secondhand shops. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, so, so this was a typical kind of dark strangler type of murder. And, um, so that's how he, that, that was sort of his MO. I mean, one of the questions I have is whether that's the only MO he, he used. In other words, there's a lot of cases that I've explored in the 1925-1924 period uh, where perhaps the woman wasn't in a rooming house. Maybe he was more opportunistic than we think. But if we gather all of those cases together, there might be up to 30 cases in the United States like that that fit his M.O. Right. before he ever came to Canada. Yeah. So, what, And he was in the area that these things happened? Well, the other thing about him, of course, is that while he was from San Francisco, um, he was a wanderer. That is, he traveled from one end of the coast to the other. He was one of the earliest kind of uh, mobile serial killers. He didn't just, you know, stay within his comfort zone where he was in San Francisco. He killed all across uh, the uh, the continent, um, you know, Detroit, uh, Philadelphia, um, Kansas City, Chicago, and, of course, a whole lot on the West Coast, where he didn't just confine himself to San Francisco. He went to Portland and killed four women in Portland. He also killed in Seattle, you know, where I believe you are right at the moment. Wow. So he, he kind of got around. He didn't. He certainly did, yes. What was the, what was, what was the reason for that? Was he um, not able to get work, or did he just like that? What do you know about him that made him do that? Well, we're not sure. He was a wanderer from a very early period. I mean, if you go back to his history, and and, and by the way, uh, I don't know if I should say this or not, but, you know, if I look at the podcasts and the books that have been written about him previously, I must say that there's a huge amount of misinformation out there about him. Right. Uh, you know, I uh, one thing that I do in my work is that um, I, I try not to write any fiction at all. Like I, I, I mean, some in some cases it perhaps means that the book that you write is kind of more dry than than it might be for, for readers. But I find that as I researched this guy and I looked at what was written about him, there was just all kinds of myths that were not true. Uh, I mean, typically, for example, um, you know, you hear about how. Uh, he, his parents died of syphilis when he was just a uh, an infant. Um, his uh, he was he was brought up within his maternal um, uh, family, uh, the Nelson family, and um, you know there's all kinds of myths that you know as a young child he was brought up by his aunt Lillian or that his grandmother was a was a um, a widow who was. A, age 40 or whatever, it had some young children. All of this is myth, because what mm -hmm. I do is I, I use genealogical uh, sources, and I look at all the census records and so on, and I discover that the Nelson family was an extended family where there was, you know, the grandfather and the grandmother, and then there was a bunch of older boys that still lived in the house with them and some other children. Uh, and so he was brought up in a house in which... He had a grandfather and a grandmother, and the grandfather died when he was seven and a half, and the grandmother died when he was ten. And then he did not go to his Aunt Lillian's house. He went and stayed in the house that he was brought up in, and that house was taken over by his Uncle Willis and his wife, and his Uncle Willis's wife. And that's where he, he was taken over when his grandparents died. And only later did he gravitate to his Aunt Lillian's house. All the stuff about his background as a child is probably mythic. For example, everybody talks about how his grandmother or his aunt were super religious. We have absolutely no evidence of that. There's no evidence that they were religious. In fact, Aunt Lillian was an alcoholic, and one of his uncles was an alcoholic. When they all died, there was no funeral that was a church funeral. 
I mean, he might have been religious, but we have no evidence for that. So somebody writes way back when that he was brought up in this horribly religiously uh, dominated uh, culture in which, you know, he hated sex or he quoted Revelation or he was going to be a preacher or whatever. Now, it's true that later on in life, he was quite religious. He was he was he was obsessed with religious issues. But that doesn't mean that his family, that that came from his family. So that's just one example of a myth. And then. You have all sorts of myths about, you know, as a child, he had huge hands and he went mm-hmm. climbing up walls and he was peeping on his, 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 his cousins and so on. All of this is mythic. There's, there's no evidence for any of this. The only evidence we have about his upbringing is actually from the trial transcript, you know, of, of Aunt Lillian and his wife. Uh, you know, so, um, a lot of this is sort of like, uh, stuff that comes from early journalistic accounts that are all made up. And yeah. and so one of the things I want to do in the book, of course, is to say, look, you know, here's what we know about this guy from, from evidence. And the other thing that I do is that um, I have a lot of newspaper databases that I use. And uh, once you finish the census records, you can look up and sort of find out more about, you know, sort of what's out there. And um, there's all kinds of myths about, you know, that at, uh, you know, at, at, at a certain age of 20 or whatever, he was put in jail for trying to rape uh, his neighbor girl or something in the basement. And that's all myth, too. He was in the army and he was court martial. And there was a trial in which he was sentenced two years to Mare Island for desertion. And it's that that's an early sentence. And there, you know, so, I mean, I could go on at length about all the myths that are out there. Yeah. This is the- this is the problem with covering historical crime. I've talked about this on my show numerous times. You, you never know, you know, when you're uh, when you're going through this stuff. And like you mentioned, early newspaper reports, um, yeah. they just really played fast and loose with the facts, so they could sort of paint a narrative. And and oftentimes uh, you see it in one place, uh, some piece of information, quote unquote, and uh, it becomes fact over time so i'm really i'm really glad that you're doing this kind of work to yeah uh, sort of dispel the myth in in a case like this because you know there are books written that that you know quote all these things and and those are the sources that i for example would use i don't have the time to go into exactly uh into you know um ancestry and all that kind of thing when um, I'm writing a quick case for next week kind sure. of thing. So, so yeah, it's really, I mean, yeah, it's really valuable that you do this kind of thing. Yeah. You can't, you can't blame people, you know, who write 300 books or whatever in their lifetime, you know, that, that they're just using the information that they have from other sources. Mm-hmm. You don't have time to do the kind of research over 30 years that I've done, you know, yeah. and, and so I'm not blaming them, but you know, and it's interesting too, just on that point, how, you know, things are, are sort of exploded over time. Like very shortly after this case was, was closed, there was an article somewhere in True Detective magazine or something saying that, you know, one of the victims in Winnipeg was a 13 year old girl, uh, who was trying to sell artificial flowers door to door. And he, she was lured by Earl Nelson into this rooming house and she was found later under the bed. She was found stark naked. None of the clothes were with her. And uh, she was raped after she was killed by strangulation. I have pictures of her. And, of course, you know, I didn't put them in my book because they show kind of indignity around, you know, the private parts because she was raped. But, you know, she was not mutilated. There was nothing about her. There was no, she was hit over the head and she was, you know, strangled like most of the victims. But then what happened is that somebody way back when said her crime was so gruesome that the police wouldn't release evidence about it. Well, that's not true at all. What what it was is that the trial for Earl Nelson in Winnipeg actually took place over Patterson's death. Like next day, he went and killed a 27-year-old housewife in Elmwood. And the trial just concentrated on her. It didn't concentrate on Cowan, the the Lola Cowan girl, because the the Crown wanted to have sort of a, a double kick at the can. First of all, we try you for the Patterson murder. And if you get acquitted for that, we'll come back to you with the Cowan murder. 
So that's why it was sort of like, okay, maybe suppression of some kind of information. But very shortly after that, everybody talked about how, how, you know, she was mutilated. And, you know, somebody like, uh, J. Robert Nash writes about her being cut up into pieces. And, you know, uh, from there on, all the writers talk about how, how awful, you know, she was, she was mutilated. She was not mutilated. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, you know how somebody speaks into somebody else and then you go down the line 20 times and then it gets exaggerated. By the time you get to the current story, it's completely out of what actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Um, so what, what was the climate like back in the twenties? Um, in the, especially in the West where he first started murdering, um, did the cops have a clue? Um, were they sort of on to who this person was, or it was just was there a well, lot there of were, murders? Yeah, there were a couple of uh, landlady murders initially in San Francisco. That it, you know, when people came on the scene, all the newspapers talked about it being a murder. But then there was the coroner, Doctor Silby Strange, or something, who I'm not sure about the competence of this guy, decided that these early murders were actually deaths by pneumonia. I mean, you know. There's, there's articles missing and the, and the police simply closed the, closed the books on it. And then he probably went to Philadelphia and murdered three landladies there. And the Philadelphia is a long way away. So those weren't linked together other than the three of them being linked. But when he started to kill in 1927 in the, on the West Coast in San Francisco, right away, those murders were linked together. Like, okay, now, you know, two weeks later, we have another landlady killed. Well, that's obviously like this first one. So all they're all linked together, but they don't know who this guy is. They don't have a clue. Now, um, I'm sort of jumping ahead here, but um, what they do have ultimately is a pretty good description of the guy, because what he did is when he killed that lady in, in, in uh, Seattle, you know, her name was Monks, she had a house for sale. A lot of jewelry was stolen from her. Then uh, this guy, who called himself Adrian Harris, goes to a rooming house in Portland. Uh, this is after he's already killed three women in Portland earlier. He goes to this rooming house where there's three rooming house ladies, and he's kind of in a um, he's got kind of a flu, and these ladies decide to cook for him and so on. And he goes out and buys all the groceries for their Thanksgiving dinner, and he gives jewelry to these ladies, okay, sort of like, you know, whatever. And then he comes the next day or whatever, and the, the women sort of find out that one of them got more jewelry than the other or something, and they're having an argument. He says, okay, I'm out of here. You're going to call the cops or whatever. And he goes over to uh, another house, a rooming house lady, and he kills that lady. That's Myers, you know. So the point is that very shortly the police, of course, find out that this jewelry was given to these ladies, and they look at the jewelry, and there's just no doubt that the jewelry is from monks in Seattle. And so these ladies give a full description of what this guy's like, what his pattern of speech is, what he looks like, uh, his habits, and so on. And so they've got a good idea of what this Adrian Harris, so-called, looks like. But they don't know it's, it's, it's uh, Nelson. It's not until he's arrested in Winnipeg in June that they discover who this guy is, right? They, have, they don't have a clue. Wow. So w what was his um, lifestyle like then? Was he working in these different cities when he was traveling around, or what What did he do? Well, it's, it's a good mystery about that. Um, he was uh, somebody who was uh, uh, twice escaped from the Napa State uh, Hospital for the Insane. Okay, so... He was declared insane uh, by naval authorities uh, after his desertion and sentenced to the hospital in which he escaped several times. He wasn't there very long the first time around. And then he uh, got married um, and he, um, I'll talk about that, that he also went back to Napa State after he had attacked a, a, a young woman in a house. He was uh, uh, not sentenced to jail because he was clearly insane. He was at that point psychotic. He had quite a long stay at the Napa State uh, Hospital again for the second time, in which he ultimately escaped in December uh, uh, or late November of 1923. 
And so at that stage, it's kind of a mystery. How did he make a living? Uh, we have evidence in the capital case file in Ottawa where, you know, to, at the end of your, uh, at, when you're sentenced to death, uh, there's also a, a whole process of, of whether the cabinet in Canada will consider to, to change your sentence to commute, commuting your sentence to life in prison. And all kinds of documents I found in the, in the capital case file, including, uh, various, um, affidavits from people in California saying this guy's crazy. And one of them comes from a um, person who hired him, Nelson, to work around the house as a landscape person and handyman for like a year and a half. And so he was living with this family in an outbuilding somewhere. And this was in Palo Alto, California, where his uh, where his wife actually lived as well. No, not with him. They were separated uh, after six months of marriage. And so this guy talks about this guy, you know, working around the house and leaving for extended periods of time or whatever. So he had in a whole bunch of jobs. Like when he was younger, he talked about, you know, uh, when he was interviewed, he talked about having all kinds of jobs. None of them for very long. You know, nobody kept him on for very long. He didn't have a capacity to hold a job. So he would work from time to time, landscaping or uh, in the lumber industry, or he would work as a painter or whatever. So he admits that himself. Now, what we find is that often the idea of robbery, you know, where you're actually killing the landlady, not only having your lustful sex or whatever with the dead body, but also stealing items, that comes kind of later on in his career, which makes it sound like for a long time, he was doing murders, but wasn't actually uh, making, you know, robbing. Robbing becomes a, a kind of motive after you sort of think, well, okay, he's no longer got support from his aunt or from his uh, from a job or from, uh, you know, staying at this house in Palo Alto. And that's when he starts to pretty consistently robbing from his victims. And in Winnipeg, you know, he uh, robbed from Mrs. Patterson. He took her wedding ring uh, from her and ultimately sold it in Regina. And so you see that pattern developing over time. So you think the original murders he was doing out of just, um, like, do you think he wanted to kill them so that he could rape them when they were dead? Was that kind of a motive for him? Or did he get into some sort of fight and kill them and kill them for the thrill of killing and then rape them? Like, do you... Do you kind of have that idea of what he yeah. was? I think it's a very complex question, A, about, you know, uh, the whole literature on lust killing, you know, what, what motivates a person. Clearly a, a massive amount of anger toward women. Many of his early victims were elderly. Uh, now, we know from the trial transcript that he married a woman. Get this, you know, people in the newspaper said that she was um, – 59 years old, and he was 22. Think about that. He married a woman that was old enough to be his grandmother. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, I do the research on the genealogical background of this woman, and I discover it's not quite true. She was 49, and he was 22. Well, that's still a pretty big gap. He's marrying this older woman. Now, you'll notice from the trial transcript that she only stayed with him for six months, and he quite consistently toward the end, threatened her life. He was insanely jealous of her. You know, she, he, she, anybody she talked to, he was just crazy over. And so one theory, of course, is that he is sublimating, you know, the death of his wife. He's killing all these other people as a substitute for killing his wife, you know. Uh, so that's one theory. Now, he's clearly a psychopath. He did all of the lust murder stuff. Uh, maybe he's killing, you know, his, he's supplementary. He's trying to kill his mother. I mean, I don't know. Um, and so, uh, then you also get to the question of, is this really kind of sexual? You know, and it, it, most of the literature suggests that these kinds of murders are less sexual than they are of control, right? You control the woman. <clears throat> you get excited over the fact that you're killing. It, it, killing in itself could be. Uh, enough to uh, get you off or whatever, because you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, uh, you're into this kind of uh, <clears throat> bloodlust. 
So I don't I don't know if I've answered your question on that. I think that it's a complex question, obviously, yeah, in terms yeah. of what the motives of these guys are. Yeah, yeah, it's strange. Um, so how, what was his appearance like? So what kind of a guy was he? Did Were people, uh, people must have thought he was a nice guy in order for him to move around so much and then go check out places and nobody felt threatened by him? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, as many of these cases, not just his, you know, there's kind of a, a double personality in which the person is charming, he's uh, very articulate, He's ingratiating to people. He looks like a, a the guy next door. You know, he's obviously not this monster that's clearly evident when he's coming to people's houses. Oh, my goodness. And it's only in retrospect that people say, oh, he had strange eyes or, you know, I, you know, he gave me shivers up my spine. Well, that's all post event information, right? <laughs> you know, and, and when he was arrested, I mean, the cops here in, in, in Manitoba, he was, he was arrested by the Manitoba provincial police. Uh, and there's a big story in my book about how all this takes place. He actually escaped jail in the little town of Killarney, you know. So, and, and when they arrested him, he said, "Well, he was just the nicest guy. Like, and we had no idea that, you know, he, he was, you know." <laughs> you know? And uh, and then, of course, because of the image of the gorilla man strangler, um, there's a lot of literature in which uh, you know portrays him as having huge hands and hairy arms and bulky and walking on all fours and you know, uh, you know feeding into that image of, of the beast, right? And so, you know, it's interesting that one person who went to the trial, which was a sensational trial in Winnipeg, uh, you know, lots of women attended, and um, one of them said, why? He's the best-looking guy in the whole courtroom. <laughs> you know? and, and so we have this myth again of, you know, the physical characteristics of the guy um, and, and, you know, even the police got wrapped up in this. When you look at the police, you know, how when he was arrested in Winnipeg, they, they of course, would write down all the statistics, you know, how tall is he, how how much did he weigh, what color is his skin, and so on. And, and it's all there. And then right at the bottom, it says, walks like an ape, you know. like So they can't resist, <laughs> you know, right. uh, uh, making him look like, uh, you know, a bit of a, a beast. And, and it, it's also true of one of the journalists in Winnipeg, who's a very famous journalist, uh, Charles Piper, writing for one of the newspapers. He somehow got on the train that was taking uh, Earl Nelson back from his arrest in Killarney, taking him back to Winnipeg. And he writes this long description of Earl Nelson in which he is partly racist and partly atavist. Like he tries to portray the guy as having kind of sloping uh, skull and big hands and Degroid features, you know, the kind of <laughs> racist thing. And, and so again, you, you know, lots of the, 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 the more contemporary accounts of this guy, you know, describe gorilla-like features. Now, it's true that he was probably pretty strong. You know, he, he was only five foot six inches tall, wasn't a big guy. And uh, there's no evidence that his arms were overly long. Uh, but he was probably pretty strong. You know, he was an outdoor guy, so he was strong. You know, I, I look at this and I see that he's he's killed a number of of, of women through the United States through his journey, and uh, was never caught until he got to Winnipeg. Um, what was the difference in Winnipeg that allowed him to get captured as compared to all of the murders he did in the states where he didn't? Well, I mean, that that's a really good question, because <clears throat> when he was captured and, and, and hung here, there was a lot of journalists in Canada who thumbed their nose at the United States. You know, there was kind of a congratulatory mood in Canada about how we caught the guy, we hung the guy, and these Americans could not, you know, hang him or catch him. And there was also a, a, a sense in which People were talking about how the um, uh, Canadian, uh, you know, Canadians had like one twentieth the number of murders as did America at that time per capita, which could be true. And so, you know, they were sort of just talking about how lawless America was and so on. I don't think that that's really fair. I, I think that um, it was partly luck in Canada that we caught him. But there's also the bald prairie effect. In Canada, after he murdered these two women in Winnipeg, 
very, very quickly, uh, the police were able to trace his trail because what he did foolishly was he had a lot of clothing changes that he made, which is kind of unusual because it doesn't really follow the American pattern. In the American pattern, he would often take clothing from the scene. But in, in Canada, he actually changed clothing at the scene. So he actually took clothing that he took off his body, and then he would steal the, the suit of Mr. Patterson that was hanging at the door and put that suit on. Then he went down to Main Street to a secondhand shop, and he exchanged the clothes again. He took the clothes that he just got from Mr. Patterson's house, and he stole money from the house. So he used crisp new $10 bills and completely changed into a brand new set of gray suit and a top hat and a coat and so on. Now, to make a long story short, when he got to Regina, to a rooming house there, and found out several days later uh, that the full description of this clothing that he was wearing was in the newspaper, he went out and changed clothes again and left the clothing in the Regina rooming house uh, or whatever. So one of the things was that the police could trace clothing <laughs> because, you know, the secondhand man went to the police and said, look, this guy gave this suit here. Is it the suit that came from the murder scene? Absolutely. So they were quite quickly on the scene. But in the end, he was captured in a little town called Wakapaw, which doesn't even exist any longer, several days later. And his... um he walked into, Doc, into Morgan's general store or whatever. And here's what's really crucial, is that this was such a scandalous case that all the radios and all the newspapers were talking about these murders in Winnipeg and describing this guy, okay? What he was wearing, what he looked like. And th this guy, Morgan, had actually read the newspapers and said, well, you know, gee, look at this guy's coming into my store. He looks like, you know, gee, I wonder if he's this guy, right? And the other guy, the, the elevator operator, had heard the news over the radio. So radio was fairly new in this day. We're talking 1927, right, folks? You know, there's not many radio stations, but radio became crucial because he was listening to the description of the guy over the radio. And so both these gentlemen figured, you know, maybe this guy's the guy. So they phoned the provincial police officer in Killarney, you know, just sort of north. And by the way, Wakapaw is like, a couple of miles from the border, like Earl Nelson's trying to get back to America, right? And so these, uh, the police officer says, well, why don't you guys trail him? So they trailed him as he's walking toward America. And finally, let's make a long story short, you know, the Manitoba Provincial Police arrests this guy. He claims, oh, well, I'm just working at a ranch nearby and I'm just going for a walk, and, you know, whatever. And, but they arrest him. They put him in jail in Killarney. And he escapes from jail within five minutes of them putting him in the jail, a double-locked cell, you know. And so, of course, in Killarney, a small town, which still exists, beautiful little town, uh, you know, there was a wild night in which, you know, hundreds and hundreds of men came from all over and, and cordoned the town and had the guns and, you know, were searching for this guy. And in the meantime, he's sitting in the back of some shed somewhere, and uh, having a little nap, you know, and so in the morning he walks out and he, uh, um, you know, he asks for a cigarette from a guy who's cutting a lawn and they, tra they trail him to the railway station. And another myth that exists about the capture, just by the way, is that uh, when uh, in, in the middle of the night, Winnipeg police find out that he has been, that he's escaped, they send a special train, you know, a CPR train all the way to Killarney. And on the train is like all kinds of, 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 of Manitoba police and Winnipeg police and CPR police and bloodhounds. And that train is going to arrive in Killarney at nine o'clock in the morning to search for this guy who's escaped the jail. And so uh, one of the myths is that this uh, Earl Nelson was sort of hiding under the railway platform. And as the train arrives in Killarney, he pulls up onto the train to escape, right? And, of course, the train is actually sent to capture him. Isn't that a good story? Yeah. That's a complete myth, you know, <laughs> because I've actually gone to Killarney. I've talked to people. I've, I've, I've looked at, you know, all the evidence that in the attorney general's file, and that's not what happened. He was captured before the train ever came into Killarney. He was captured west of 
the uh, tracks. And, uh, uh, you know, it was pretty close to when the train came in. But it, that story about him being in underneath the platform was complete myth, you know. So that's another example. Now, what were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, more about his capture. Like, in, You know what I find um, curious is here's this guy going around, um, you know, uh, ra- murdering and raping um, landladies and things like that. And then when he gets to Canada, he gets caught. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But But so did – Anybody in America have a clue that he was responsible for any of the murders down there? Were they on to him? Were they chasing no. him? Was he wanted? Or was this just um, found out later? Yeah, like he was, you know, I mean, it, obviously there was already before he was ever captured, people as journalists or police officers were making lists of all the cases that should be linked together to this guy. who They don't know who it is, Right. I mean, they call him Adrian Harris because he's using fake names all the time. Like in Winnipeg, he used the word Woodcoats. And in, in Regina, he used the word Harry Hartwell. He was constantly uh, changing his name, right, wherever he went. Uh, but they had linked these cases together, but they didn't know who he was. Uh, now, I think that what's also unfair in terms of this Canadian-American thing is that when I look at the evidence... Uh, the guy who was the chief inspector or detective from uh, San Francisco, a guy called Duncan Matheson. Now, Duncan Matheson was actually on his way back from a convention in Windsor, Ontario. And he happened by chance to be passing through Winnipeg at the time that Mrs. Patterson's murder was already discovered. He tells the police in Winnipeg, this is before the second body was discovered, Lola Cowan, who was actually the first murder, but she was hidden under the bed for like two or three days before she, her body was discovered. And so he tells Winnipeg police, you know, I think that this murder here, Mrs. Patterson, follows the pattern in the States of this guy that we're looking for. So it wasn't true that the Americans were not involved you know, you could say, well, Duncan Matheson helped capture this person, you know, because he, he sort of, you know, gave all the MOs and all this to the Winnipeg police. And so, uh, you know, I think that it's kind of unfair to blame the uh, sort of ineptitude of the Americans uh, for not capturing the guy, you know. But in back in those days, I think communication between various police forces were not as, obviously, as what they were today. And I think, obviously, this mobile killer, you know, he would kill somebody and the next day he'd leave town, right? So, I mean, that's probably the way he got away with it in the United States. Yeah. Do you think uh, a killer like this could exist today? I don't know if they could. Yeah, good question. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I'm competent to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think with today's technology yeah, exactly. and, and, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I mean, we we rarely ever hear of uh, a serial killer anymore. So yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, he would definitely have to adapt to the new times. I think if he yeah. did, you know. Yeah. What do you what do you what do you think about the trial? So he he gets um, caught and he's up for trial. Um, were they going to um, after the trial if they convict him or or whatever they were going to do? Were they going to let the Americans? Um, extradite and and as well try him for some of the murders in the states or were they just going to hang him yeah um when i studied the murders in the states some of them are so obviously linked to this guy in other words after he was arrested they took the picture and they'd show him well let's take buffalo for example you know he murdered a, a landlady in buffalo what's a little different there is he spent several days at the landlady's house and, you know, one of the persons who was living at the house, he took for dinner t- two times. And then the brother of the lady who was killed spent time with him. So they all spent enormous amounts of time with the guy. And they could describe him and say what, what he said and, how, you know, so on. And they showed the picture of Nelson to these guys. They said, oh, yeah, this is the guy. Absolutely no doubt. This is the guy. And so Buffalo had every reason to extradite him. But Buffalo said, well, you know, what's the point? He's he's he's. He's going he's gonna to be hung in Canada, so there's no point in, in doing that. Another good example, uh, you, you know, uh, of that is, is, you know, there's another city in which there was a lot of talk about indictment. 
But that never, of course, happened. And he was also somebody, Nelson, who to the end claimed innocence. In other words, psychopathically, he was completely of, you know, sort of two personalities. One was that he was a good person and, you know, he just denied ever killing anybody, even though the evidence was absolutely overwhelming. Now, to get to the point about the trial, um, I think that because the evidence is overwhelming, I don't think this is a case of, of, of wrongful conviction. You know, I'm very aware of, as a law professor, I'm very aware of wrongful convictions. I'm pretty convinced that we have the right guy. But that doesn't mean that the trial was fair. I think that, the, that you know, a good example in my book, I talk about the fact that before he was ever brought to trial, all the newspapers convicted him ahead of time. I mean, there was massive pretrial publicity about how he killed all these women in the States and that he had been identified here and he had been identified there way before the trial. So there was that. And there was also, uh, in terms of the attorney general, he said, well, we'll give the reward before the trial. You know, I mean, it was a reward that we were offering for his capture. Uh, so it was like there was no presumption of innocence. I mean, we'll give you the rewards, you know, before you're you're even convicted to the people who helped capture you. Uh, then also he was taken and put into the Vaughn Street jail, into the condemned cell. The first time it had ever been done. Before trial, you've got somebody on the death cell already because they're afraid of this guy, obviously, that he's going to escape. And then you've got all kinds of stuff that I found out about how the, how the, uh, before he was ever tried, they were already planning for his ex- execution because uh, people in Winnipeg were executed at the Bond Street Jail, which overlooked the University of Manitoba at that time. And students could go up to the top of the floor of the university and look at the hanging. And that was very upsetting to the authorities. And so they were trying to find a different place to hang him. And they did this before he was ever convicted. <laughs> and so and the other thing is that they tried to have an early trial. Within one month of being uh, captured, the attorney general was trying to, uh, you know, with the with complicity for with the courts, trying to have an early um, uh, trial to try and get to try and get rid of this guy. And so, you know, what I'm saying, like I could uh, talk about this at length, but you can see how. Uh, there's a question about the vaunted British presumption of innocence was to some extent really violated. Now, that's not to take away from the fact that the actual depth of the evidence was such that I'm pretty sure that this guy was, was, was rightfully convicted. Yeah. The big issue is insanity, of course. That's another issue. Right. Well, so how did his family and how did, you know, he had the wife and everything going on. Were they at the trial? Were they part of it? Did they care? Were they, how was that affected? Good question. Um, now, when, during the, you know, he had a court appointed, ultimately they appointed James Stitt to be his lawyer. And uh, it, my book deals a lot with Stitt. Like I, I take the major characters like the defense lawyer Stitt like the hangman, uh, Ellis, and I do quite a bit of work on who they were and their life. You know, I don't just concentrate on the serial killer. Now, oh, James Stitt, um, he had, he obviously uh, tried to get all the records from the uh, Napa authorities, which he ultimately did. So he could show that at one time, Earl Nelson, his client, had been adjudged to be insane, you know. Not just a psychopath, but insane, you know, psychotic, hallucinating, you know, and so on. And so he put up quite a big defense. But the thing is, he couldn't get any local psychiatrist to give evidence that maybe the guy was insane when he was murdering these women in Winnipeg. None of the psychiatrists would would would, would, would go against Dr. Alvin Mathers, who was the provincial psychiatrist, a very prominent figure in Winnipeg who claimed that Earl Nelson, in terms of the legal definition of insanity, was sane. He was not insane. And so uh, what what uh, Stitt did is he got Earl Nelson's wife, now, you know, in her late 60s by the time of the trial, and he got Earl Nelson's aunt, Aunt Lillian, to come to Winnipeg to give evidence of the insanity of Earl Nelson. So both of these individuals came to Winnipeg to give evidence at the trial. 
And it's interesting as a side that when they came to Winnipeg, you know, they came at the behest of, of, of the Defense Council, and uh, they didn't expect to be maltreated in Winnipeg. And when they got to a hotel or whatever, uh, they had to actually leave the hotel when the hotel manager said, we're getting too much publicity that's negative. They went to another rooming house and they had to leave there as well. So they didn't feel all that welcome in Winnipeg, you know. And so it's kind of a, a, a bad mark on us that uh, that this happened, and, you know, that they were sort of didn't feel that they were well treated. And of course, they gave evidence at trial about Bill Nelson's background and so on. And and perhaps made things more bizarre than they needed to be because they wanted to show that he was insane. Um, and so uh, after the trial, they left and went back to San Francisco. And when Earl Nelson was hung, uh, the body was shipped back to San Francisco and is in 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 the um, is in the uh, cemetery where the whole Nelson family is buried. Let's let's talk about your book and uh, contact information and all that. How is the book available everywhere? And do you have a website? Do you do social media? How do people find you? Yes, I have a website, which is Alvin Esau, like with no dots or anything, all lowercase, alvinesaw.com. And, uh, you know, the book is available from all the usual sources on Amazon and from different booksellers uh, and so on. Um, and... Um, so, you know, it's, it's easily available. Of course, you know, I live in Victoria and most of the bookstores here carry it and so on. And, 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 and so people can find it probably best on, on my webpage, you know, in terms of the links that you can make to it. I, I should mention, you know, because people shouldn't be misled that the book that I wrote concentrates on the Canadian side of things, right? I mean, it concentrates on the murders in Winnipeg in great detail, the manhunt for him, his escape. It talks about the pre-trial period, talks about the trial, which was a sensational trial. It talks about commutation and hanging and so on. And it does, of course, go extensively into the background of Earl Nelson, because I'm, you know, there's so much myth about that. So I've done a lot of research there. But the book does not deal really with all of the 30 or so murders in the United States. I am writing a second book, which I'm almost finished on that. So, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to call it, linkage perhaps or whatever, where I'm looking at all of these murders. And what I tend to do is I'm looking at the victims, you know, not just Earl Nelson. I'm looking at the victims, the investigation, what links, if any, were made to Earl Nelson. You know, how secure are we that this was actually one of his murders? This could have been somebody else. Um, and so I, that book I'm hoping to, to still, you know, finish and, and hopefully get published. So, you know, people, um, you know, I wrote the initial book that I wrote was over a thousand pages long, and I decided to sort of cut it in half. You know, one half is now the book uh, that deals with the with the Manitoba case, and the second book will be coming out. And the book that I've written on this case, you know, I have a thousand seven hundred footnotes. Uh, you know, so it's a book that I'm writing that I'm hoping is kind of scholarly. You know, it's got obviously... Uh, I, I, it's written for a general audience, but I'm, I'm intending it to be a scholarly book uh, for libraries, law libraries, and, and sort of part of Manitoba legal history, part of the prairie history um, uh, uh, of Canada. Well, uh, you know, we'll have everything linked up on our website, too, so people can find it real easy with one click in that. Um, do you have, um, when you write such uh, a detailed book like that, when you're doing it, and and having even a second part, is there something you hope that people take away from the book itself besides the general details or the facts of it? Is there something you want a reader to take away? Well, of course, you know, I've already mentioned that one thing I'm hoping for is that the book might dispel many of the myths that exist out there in the literature. I mean, to this day, there's tons of podcasts out there that just use all the old information and so I'm hoping, A, that, you know, the book might be found out and might make some difference to people being more accurate, both about the about him and about what happened in Winnipeg. That's one thing. And the second thing is that just generally, I'm just hoping that the book will contribute in a scholarly way uh, to the history of our uh, great province here in Manitoba which I haven't been to for over a dozen years as I <laughs> retire to the West Coast, but I have a great fondness for the place. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And don't go there during uh middle of winter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stay in Victoria in the winter. Yeah. yeah, we can we take all all the rain we can shovel here. <laughs> That's funny. That. Did you yeah. did you get any surprises in doing your research besides all the bad information and stuff out there and all that sort of stuff? Was there anything about the case or about doing this kind of research that kind of you were like, wow, shocked about? Yeah, uh, I mean, um one thing that I found uh, uh out about is that when I was working on uh Stitt, for example, uh, you know, I discovered when I looked at his family and so on that he came from a broken home way back in the early 1900s, which is so unusual to have divorce at that time. And then I discovered that he had a brother, perhaps was psychopathic as well, you know, like a brother who went to San Quentin prison, uh, who was, you know, uh, ultimately later on in life pretended to be, I think, pretended to be a doctor inventor. Uh, and his father, you know, James Stitt's father, and by the way, that family moved to Stockton, California. So James Stitt actually had a connection to California when he was appointed lawyer here in Winnipeg. Um, and, and, you know, so, you know, you found out all kinds of surprising things about some of the characters in, in, in that, in the book. Another thing is I found out all kinds of stuff that nobody has ever found out about the hangman, Arthur Ellis. And I've uh, reduced that in the book to quite a smaller space due to size. But I've discovered all kinds of things about how he lied about all sorts of stuff, about he had three different uh, marriages, one of which he, he abandoned. Uh, he was uh, constantly uh, in, in drunken scandals and so on. So I, I guess I was surprised as I went through the research to uh, discover all kinds of things about other characters, not just the serial killer that were interesting, that I thought were, were illuminating. Yeah. Um, ultimately, uh, I love doing research, and I hate writing. I mean, I you know, it's <laughs> like when the agony of, of not writing exceeds the agony of writing when I sit down. <laughs> but I, I love going to archives. You know, I've been to all these different cities, and I worked with microfilm and the newspapers and so on back in the 1990s. Uh, getting, uh, reports from the police, uh, going to the, getting autopsies, you know, like that I enjoy, but boy, I just, the writing part, I'm just not, you know, I'm not, I'm not good at it. I don't feel comfortable with it, <laughs> but it's got to be done, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, that's that part of it that we all got to yeah. do at the end, you yeah. know. Well, it's truly amazing. A great story. It sounds like you've done a lot of really good research, which we need more of, especially in true crime, because it's so it's so quick and fast these days. So it's good to have you on board there for that. Um, now, the book we're talking about, The Gorilla Man Strangler Case, and it's serial killer Earl Nelson. And our guest has been the author of that book, Alvin Esau. So thank you for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's been delightful. Great stuff. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.